Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. My guest today is comedian Cliff Cash. Cliff is a North Carolina native, and he's been performing long enough to do headlining spots all around the country, but not so long that he's forgotten what it's like to be a feature or a host comedian like me. Obviously, he's the headliner and people are there to see him, but Cliff goes out of his way to find the strongest local comedians he can to feature for him, and then he invites me to host. So I guess I must be the second strongest comedian he could find. This was a particularly special episode for me because I have been wanting to sit down with Cliff for a long time, but the problem is he's fucking busy. This guy has been traveling all over the country, headlining east and west and east again. And when he comes through town, there's usually time to perform, but not enough time to sit down for an interview. However, one of the insufficiently compensatory side effects of a pandemic is that we all have more time. This means Cliff and I were able to sit down and record this podcast in a relaxed and meaningful way. And I'm so glad that we did. What I didn't realize when we sat down to talk was that this would release right around the time his brand new comedy album came out on iTunes. How amazing is that? Cliff Cash just produced his first comedy album on iTunes called Halfway There. I think you should pause the podcast, go to iTunes, drop $9.99 on the album, and then come back and listen to my one-on-one conversation with Cliff. You can also go to his Etsy store and buy some of the beautiful prints that he made from photographs that he's taken from national parks all around the country, because that's where he spends his time when he's not performing. Now, during the pandemic, he's doing a little construction, helping some friends renovate some houses, and he also bought this incredible van that he's renovating so he can travel and live in the van. And I got to admit it, I have a little bit of hashtag van life envy. I've started eyeing vans so that when the world opens up again, I've got a car that can take me places that I can live in short term, and I tease my daughter all the time that we're going to sell our house and live in a van, and her response is, well, at least I get to still live with mommy half the time because she lives in a house. So that's my daughter for you, and that's me, and this is Cliff, and if you want to support Cliff, you can buy his album or his artwork, and if you want to support the podcast, you can go to learningtofail.com and click on our donate button. And if you want to support us for free, you can tell your friends to listen to Learning to Fail, and you can like and subscribe and comment and rate us and review us on iTunes. That would be so helpful. If you could just take a little time to go to iTunes, rate and review the podcast, it would mean the world to me. All right, that's it. That's all the promotion. Support Cliff, support the podcast, support yourselves. Thank you for listening. And here's my interview with Cliff Cash. I've had to call people after an interview and been like, hey, I don't want my mom to hear that thing about uh, the LSD in the woods. Oh, my God, dude. My mom is probably my biggest listener. She's probably the only person who's listened to every episode. And she's always like, wow, I'm really learning a lot about you through your podcast. Yeah. (laughs) She now knows all the drugs I took. She knows I got whipped by a dominatrix in uh, Burning Man. Like She knows all this shit that happened that I would never tell her. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't burden her with those stories. But oh, my mom like seeks things out. Like, I don't know if she Googles me or what, but she'd be like, I watched your video about such and such. There's a lot of bad language. It's like, I tell you what, how about if I want you to see a video, I'll send it right to you. <laughs> how about don't go looking for them? It's not going to work out well. Yeah. That is, that is the safe move. Yeah. My um, mom's like super religious. So. Oh, really? And I mean, one of the best human beings in, in the world, you know, 
but we, you know, we have different values. I probably, I'd say myself, I'm more spiritual. I don't really follow any conventional religion. Uh, big fan of Jesus, but not, not a big fan of the modern church. But, uh, you know, I'm, I just have this like lifelong anxiety of like, oh, I don't want her to hear me say X, you know? Oh yeah. The first time she, she found my hour online and she just sent me a text and said, I saw that comedy video you put out, that hour video. And I mean, I, as soon as I got the text, I just started like, I felt like I was going to have a panic attack. <laughs> and the next text was, I wish you wouldn't talk like that, but I think you're funny enough to be famous. Well, that's not bad. Like, oh, no. I was like, hell yeah. yeah. And it was like that, like once we got over that, hump it's like man she's heard me say all that stuff and the world didn't end like the world's still here yeah i'm not disowned everything's fine it it was like a it was a real um it was a real like milestone in in my comedy career because i mean i spent the first few years being just knowing like if i succeed at this they're eventually going to hear what i'm saying right because it's very, you know, I'm very liberal. I'm very like nonconformist, and and I'm the literal opposite of all of my parents' values. So there was always that like anxiety that they were gonna just hear me talk on stage <laughs> and just be devastated, you know. So nah. if she was, she didn't tell me. But no, she's probably ultimately proud of you, man. I mean, you're fucking funny. And you talk about shit that matters. And you talk about shit that doesn't matter. <laughs> you got to you know? throw in some of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I like the mix. And I, I, you know, I mean, I've performed with you. I've now lost count. I mean, it hasn't been 10 times, but it's been, I don't know if it's three, four, five. Like, yeah. it's been a handful. Yeah. And, and I've seen you, I've seen you evolve, first of all, because the first time I performed with you was at least three years ago. And I've just seen you... Uh, I mean, I don't think I performed with you that time. I think I was working the door at a show that you did at the, oh, uh, yeah. at the mill room. Yeah, that's the first like time that. I met you. Yeah, that was a good show, met. though. It was a great show. Sold out, yeah. standing room. Yeah. I wish I had been on it. Then I'd have some more video of you that I haven't seen yeah, you yet. Right. <laughs> it could be on the list of footage I have of you on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I have seen you. But I remember you were doing like the uh, Southern Not Stupid tour. Is that what it was called? Sick of Stupid. Sick of Stupid. SOS. Okay. Oh, Southern Not Stupid. That's somebody else. That's that's uh, Mark Mark, someone Mark right? Evans. Mark yeah, Evans, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Um, I apologize for confusing those. But you had those two guys. One at least one was from San Francisco. Were they both from San Francisco? No, uh, Stuart Huff is from Kentucky and lives in Georgia. And Tom Simmons, I was born up north, but lives in North Carolina. Oh, why did I think he was in San Francisco? It felt like a lot of his stuff was about San Francisco. I don't know. I'm not sure. Am I remembering Ma- that wrong? Maybe, or maybe okay. he was doing, maybe something had happened in San Francisco they were doing material about, I don't remember. I don't know, okay, yeah, I, mean, I guess I got it wrong. I, mean, I get a lot but of things wrong. The but. tour was, I mean, that was a pretty big success initially. We sold out a lot of really good rooms. We sold out the Comedy Attic. We sold out the Atlanta Punchline. We had a door. We had a line around the building in Atlanta. Wow. Uh, we sold out that room, the mill room in, in Asheville, which I think was like 250 or something. Um yeah, man, we pulled like 150 on a Wednesday in Nashville. We sold out in Charleston. We had, you know, just it was going really well, and because it, it was a good concept, you know, right. it was. I sort of thought up that concept and approached those guys and said, "Hey, I want to do liberal, progressive, like intellectual, forward-thinking Southern comedy." And 
everyone I shared that idea with wanted to talk about it. Newspapers, radio. We got on NPR in three states. Wow. It was going really well. And then the liberal redneck sort of broke, you know, and that went viral. And it was like, man, that's the exact same concept. I can't, we can't continue to do something on a smaller scale that somebody's already blown up. You know what I mean? So, so we just kind of scrapped the idea, but it was, I mourned it because I felt like that was like my, that was my good idea. You know, that was your one good idea. (laughs) That was the best idea I've had in comedy. Yeah. And, uh, and I really had high hopes for it. I thought like this could really make all, this could blow up all of our careers. And I, and I think it was sort of going in that direction. So it was, it was a little bit of a bummer to, to like let go of that, that tour, but that's hard, man. It is what it is. I know. I invented a yoga product that I sell, and it's a great product. And like, I don't have another invention in me, and I yeah. don't want another invention. Like, I think of ideas all the time. I'm like, sure. not going to do it. Yeah. Because I know now how hard it is. Yeah. And I will never do this to myself again. Like, I, it's so hard inventing something. I would rather be a comedian. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's, this feels like a better life choice. Right. You know, if I can make 300 bucks a week, it's, I'm <laughs> netting more <laughs> than I am as an inventor. There's there's a bunch of comedians listening going, how did you make $300 a week? Yeah, well, I'm saying that's a goal. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying that's where I'm at. Oh, so. man. When I when I finally, and really just in the last couple of years, but I finally started making enough from comedy to feel like I have some, some room to breathe and like wasn't constantly stressed about money. It's It's been like, it feels amazing. Yeah. I don't I don't care that much about money. I'm not a No, but you want enough to be able to do it. I just want to survive and not be a burden to anyone else, not right. have to borrow money or whatever and But yeah, the last couple of years, I mean, it, just traveling around the country like building a network of people that will will have me back next year. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, totally. slowly building that network state to state and now I've I've pretty much got a network in, in almost every state where I can kind of, okay, this is where I'm going to tour in the fall. This is where I'm going to tour in the spring. And I can kind of go city to city without having too many days off, you know. And uh, it, was a, it was a slow process to get there, but it feels good to kind of, well, now now the apocalypse has yeah, ruined right. it all. We don't, we don't know when we're going to get back on the road, any of us. Yeah, but. now I'm a carpenter, I guess. <laughs> well, it's good to have a backup. Yeah. Like, I'm really happy for my yoga invention right now. I'm like, yeah. well, at least I got another business. I mean, it's, sure. I've been I've been feeling like that thing is an albatross around my neck for a while while I'm trying to be a comic. Mm-hmm. But as soon as this pandemic hit and I was my comedy work from one day to the next ended, mm-hmm. uh I was like, and my orders, because people are now doing yoga at home and not in a studio, so they all started buying my products so they could practice that's awesome. at home. So yeah, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like I'm, This is my only source of income. Like, yeah. Uh, it kind of was anyway, but I was starting to make a little money producing shows, um, but not, not a ton, but some. Like it was cash flow positive, yeah. which is, you know, I mean, I was getting eight bucks an hour, but. Yeah. Um, it's hard to make money in comedy at all. And it's a shame because, you know, when stand-up really started to kind of take off in the 80s or, you know, whatever, whatever, whenever we, you want to say that was, I don't, I don't know exactly the year, but, I mean, there were a handful of comedians and they were highly sought after. Right. And they were in demand and there were more comedians than there were gig, or there were more gigs than there were comedians, you know, so it was just like 
everybody was famous. Like right. if you were doing comedy at, at any level, you were famous, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so all those guys, and they talk, they talk about like, Oh man, it was rough. It's like, yeah, you did open mics for a year and then you were a millionaire the next year. Like, <laughs> that sounds awful. Now you can have a Netflix special and still live in a car. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, it's so saturated. There's so many comedians and there's less clubs than there used to be. And there, you know, and the pay, like, I mean, I've seen the pay go down yeah. uh, with a lot of these bookers since I've been doing it. It's like, man, you know, these clubs, you know, I mean, some of these clubs, they bring in a famous person who gets whatever they get, depending on how famous they are. Maybe they get five grand for the weekend or 10 grand or, or some ungodly number. And then they pay the feature like 50 bucks a show to feature. I know. And it's like, hey, give the guy 9500 instead right. of yeah. ten, yeah, and give the feature like five or $600. You know, I mean, just yeah. something that doesn't, that doesn't feel like disrespect. You know, like, I don't need you to like give me a fruit basket and a pedicure while I'm in the green room and <laughs> champagne. I'm not asking to be treated like some VIP or some celebrity because I'm not, but just like... I'm a grown man. Like, pay me something where I can feel like I have some fucking dignity at least, you know? And they're like, we can give you 300 for 10 shows. And I'm like, okay, thank yeah. you so much. Thank yeah. you for the opportunity. Oh, yeah, exactly. That has to be. Thank you for the opportunity is the phrase that I have learned. Ugh. That's like my answer to everything, you know? I mean, um, and I hate saying no to something. You, I remember, like, you and I did a show at the Gray Eagle um, this fall. And then, like a couple weeks later, you're like, "Hey, you want to come do a show here?" I'm like, I, "I'll be out of town," you know. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't heard from you since. Like, <laughs> oh, well. no, it's okay. But it's like you. I don't like to ever say no because it's like you got to stay top of mind with people. Yeah. Or, or they just. It's not that they they don't. Some people hold hold a grudge. I don't think that's what happened with us. No, not at all. I just think you know you you know you're like oh, okay well I whoever whoever said yes then sure. got the first call the next time because it's like they're available. Yeah, um, that's true. And. Uh, and so I just try to be like I'm learning. I'm lear- I'm learning so much about how not to be, um, and that's one of them. Just like thank you for the opportunity, and yes, if I if I if there's any way I can, the answer yeah, is yes. Yeah. So yeah, I've definitely uh, I've had to say no to some stuff in the last couple of years. Where I finally got to where I'm like making enough money that I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to drive six hours to do a $300 weekend or what, you know I mean? Just, well, but that's different. You have a rate, like you're headlining. Yeah. And you knew as a headliner, I would imagine you want to establish yourself, establish your rate and be, you know, make that what people pay you to sure. come do their show. That's totally reasonable. Yeah. Um, that's pretty different from, I mean, I'm still, you know, hosting and featuring no one, no clubs are calling to book me, you know, unless a friend of mine's the booker. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't get to I don't I don't get to say no, that's not enough money. Sure. Um I don't think anybody calls to book you in, unless you unless you're like Southern Mama and you got like viral videos on YouTube. Right. You yeah. yeah. I mean even even like successful working comics like they're getting booked. They're they're content. They're hustling, yeah. It's all one way, you know. You send yeah. out 10 emails and hope one of them gets answered. I mean, it's like I don't know when that change comes, uh, but very seldomly have I had a club reach out to me and be like, "Hey, you want to?" You know, there's some bookers that are that book fifty rooms and they're just trying to get stuff filled, and they send me your avails or whatever. But 
very seldomly does somebody like specifically reach out. Okay. And a lot of times they do and they're like, can you do blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I can't go from Florida to Washington state that weekend for a right. thousand bucks or whatever it is, you know, but, um, but man, it's a hustle, you know, and I've, I've, uh, I've done real estate. I invest done real estate investing, which is hard work and could be discouraging. I've done sales, which is hard work and can be discouraging. And then I ran a recycling business for eight years, which was inherently unprofitable uh, and super discouraging. <laughs> and comedy is harder than all of it. You know what I mean? As far as just, you miss the recycling business right now. <laughs> oh, dude, I don't. I never do. But uh, and with comedy, it's like even on a bad day, I try to think like you could be driving a recycling truck in the freezing rain, right? Dumping other people's bullshit into a truck, you know, for very little money. I mean, I, w- I was trying to take care of employees, and a lot of weeks I didn't pay myself at all. But but comedy's a hustle, man. It's probably the it's probably the least money I've ever made, probably ever since I worked. You really. Know? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of months that I look back and I'm like, man, I made more in a month as a lifeguard when I was in high school. <laughs> a lifeguard. You know? That puts it in perspective. Yeah. <laughs> made more with my lemonade stand in sixth grade. <laughs> this is bullshit. But then there's been a few months where I, you know, I'll get a corporate and then a college and then a good club gig and then a bunch of indie gigs. And it's like, shit, I made like grown up money this month. Yeah. Like, I might even get like a checking account. I'm like, go to the dentist. Who knows? <laughs> I got a party. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that I, I'm just going to like, one day I'm just going to get a Netflix special and then I'm be like, all right, who do I owe money to? <laughs> Let's go ahead and get everything squared away and start to rebuild. You know, one of, one of my favorite, first of all, I want you to know, like you are a phenomenal writer. I don't just mean a comedy Thanks, writer, man. but like you write these missives on Facebook. Like they're almost like journal entries and you know, it's about something about life where sometimes it's a political rant, but a lot of times it's just about some piece of your life, some, some realization you've had, some insight. And one of my favorite ones of yours was when you talked about comedy as being like having a drug addiction. Yeah. Do you remember this? You're like, you're borrowing money from your friends. You spent every dollar like you bought it. You, and I had been like joking about this and yeah. then you fucking wrote it perfectly. I'm like, well, so much for that. You know, like I'm not, I I can never talk about this again, except to you, you know? Um, It's so similar. It's like, man, I, I've sold my possessions to keep doing this. I've like, I'm living in a vehicle now so I can keep doing it. I've borrowed money from friends and family so I can keep doing it. It's like a drug addiction, except you don't get to get all fucked up on drugs. You know, <laughs> it's like maybe I should just do crack and then and then get better and then get a real job. You know, go work at Lowe's, driving a forklift. Does, you think there's going to be support groups for for comedy at some point, oh, like man, a twelve there sh- step? There should be. I am powerless. I think they're called open mic. mics. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like drink. I mean, that's that's like the bottom of the bottle, right there. Yeah. Open mics are called unsupport groups. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> none of the comedians listen to each other. They just all go outside and smoke cigarettes rather than support the other comedians. Oh, yeah. You take turns speaking to an empty room, man. It's brutal. That, that's my least favorite thing about comedians. It's like, hey, we already have a tiny crowd. There's only 20 people in the crowd, and there's 30 comedians outside smoking cigarettes instead of supporting each other and listening to the other comedians. Like, You could double the size of the crowd if you'd come in and... Yeah. listen to comedy and what's even worse is when there's like 
a working headliner or even a famous comic that's really killer. Right. And the local comics are like outside smoking. It's I like, know. It's like, do you, are you serious about this? Cause if you are, go listen to the person that's doing it professionally for a living and put your dumbass cigarette out. By the way, <laughs> if you're scared of coronavirus, let me tell you about lung cancer. <laughs> it's, it's pretty similar, except it lasts for fucking years and it costs $7 a day. Dumb, dumb. What are you doing? Smoking is like, I'm sorry, I'm on a fucking. No, do it. I'm on a tangent now, yeah. but like, how fucking dumb do you have to be to be like, this is, this is almost definitely going to give me either throat, mouth, or lung cancer. But it only costs seven bucks a day. So, <laughs> hey, maybe it'll kill me, but at least it's expensive. <laughs> maybe I look like a redneck, but at least I smell like shit. Huh? Come on. Maybe my face is aging prematurely, but at least my breath is gross. It's like the dumbest thing humans do. You know, yeah, it's it is. so crazy. It is. I saw a lady the other day with disposable latex gloves on and her mask pulled down around her neck, smoking a cigarette. I was like, <laughs> wishful thinking. Yeah, lady. right. Just trying to stay healthy. Yeah, I want to be the curve. I don't want to die this week. <laughs> Maybe a year or two. Maybe in a year or two, I'll be ready. Oh my god, that's hilarious, dude! I, I'll never forget when Sean Patton he was doing a show here, and he came to the auditorium on our Tuesday mic. Which that room can be great, and that room can be brutal. Yeah. And I remember when I finally like felt like I conquered that room. I was like, oh, I have figured this room out. And then the next week, I fucking bombed. Oh you know? man, that's the worst. But I was so I was watching everybody bomb, and then Sean Patton came up. And did like 15 minutes and destroyed. Oh, yeah. And that I was like, that guy's incredible. He's incredible. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, like he really is better than us. Like, and his presence and, and like just the, the way he filled the room with his energy and his voice and everything. And I was like, there just, there is a difference. Like, mm-hmm. and I, and that was the thing is like some people were outside smoking. Oh, I'm going to go to a show. I've seen him before, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. It's, Watching him do this now in this room where the rest of us have been struggling. Yeah. Like that's a great lesson. Yeah. To see that. That's that kind of thing changes you is like you're like, oh, I need to figure out and if you figure out how to make that happen. And there's always gonna be somebody, no matter how funny you are or how confident you become or or how well crafted you feel like your comedy is there will always be somebody where you stand in the back of the room and go, damn, who is this person? Like, I got to follow them? Or right. like, who? I've never even heard of this guy or this girl. And like, they're so funny. There are people all over the country that I see that I'm like, holy shit, this person is like as funny as anybody anywhere. And they're just in this little town and they never leave and they're not working the road and like nobody knows who they are. Right. And there's 500 famous comics that couldn't follow them to save their life. Right. You know? And, uh, and so that's, you know, people, people occasionally, I don't, I don't feature much anymore. I will for like a big name or whatever, but people will come up and do the whole, like you were funnier than the headliner thing and a it's super awkward especially if you're saying it with an earshot of the headliner (laughs) uh but i always tell the people i say well hey you know what last week in whatever town whatever state there was somebody that was a lot funnier than me and i had to follow them right so however funny you think i am there's people out there that are funnier than me and you don't even know who they are you know 
But those famous people, nine times out of 10, worked their ass off to get where they are, you know? Yeah. And it's like, sometimes the feature's funnier and it just is what it is and there's not much you can do about it. And it probably means the feature shouldn't be featuring. It probably means the feature should be headlining. Um, but there's always somebody funnier than you. And, and it's like, one of the great things about comedy is it, it, it always keeps you on your toes. Like, there, there's, there is no perfecting it. There is no mastering it. There's, n- there's no way to fully understand every nuance of it. Because you can, you can go and have the best set of your life, and then the next night in the same room, do the same exact set, and it'd be like, man, that was like a C plus max, right. you know? And it's, I did, it was the same set and I, I feel fine and the crowd was okay. And, you know, and, and, yeah. and it's like, there's no way to know. Maybe the crowd, maybe, a, maybe there were a couple of couples who were fighting before the show and their energy's weird. So their energy, so their energy affected the crowds around them, you know, and maybe the wait staff was, frustrated and that energy was felt by the audience or you know that you just never know what kind of nuance is happening energetically and it's like it's maddening sometimes but it's it never gets boring you know what i mean right you feel like it's it's an endless chase to like have that perfect show and like you can't really pinpoint all those variables you just have to like do the best you can and, and and you have to let go of the days when you're like man that that sucked you, <laughs> those those are hard to for me like uh that's one of my biggest struggles in comedy is i really i want to do really well every show and like even if i come off stage and everybody's like that was good and i'm like yeah it wasn't good for me and maybe they don't you know a lot of times the crowd's like oh that guy was funny Right, but you want them to be like, "Holy shit, that guy was amazing!" Yeah, and people don't know that, like, to you, that set was a a D, you know, or or that was a five out of ten, and they're like, "That was good." You're like, yeah, it wasn't, but thank you, you know. It's worse when they do know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had shows where, like, I so I opened for John Reap at the Orange Peel in Asheville. It was definitely like a huge moment for me in my sure. career so far, and biggest room I've done. And great crowd. And uh, my first show, I didn't have any friends or anything in the audience. And I had one of my best sets ever. It's the set that I'm now sending to festivals. And cool. Stuff. Like, it was really solid. That's awesome. And the second set <laughs> was not, you know. And I tried different material. And my girlfriend at the time came. And a bunch of my material in the first set was about her and not particularly positive about her. So I didn't want to do it in front of her. She's, she knows what it is, but sure, it's just sure. mean to do it when she's there. It's, it's yeah. downright, you know, cruel. And <laughs> so, and she was sitting with some other friends of mine. I just wasn't going to do it to her. And I was going to go sit with her for the rest of the show. Right. So there's no fucking way right. I was going to brutalize her from the stage and then go sit next to her and think she's going to hold my hand, you know? Right, right. So I did material that used to be my A material and just isn't anymore. And it was the wrong crowd for that material. Yeah. And, and I, you know... I've watched both videos and it sounds like they're laughing the same amount, but they were not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that was tough. And after the first show, people are come up to me and be like, great job, man. You were awesome. Nobody said that to me after this. Yeah. Show. That's funny. And I was still walking around, you know, I was just yeah. invisible. Not a single person said anything. That's funny. Yeah. And you know what it is too. I don't know if you've thought of this, but this has been my experience sometimes is that 
it's not ne- not necessarily the material. Uh, maybe it is still a material, and maybe it was okay for the crowd, but maybe energetically, uh, unbeknownst to to them or to you, but unconsciously, you're not as excited about delivering the material because you've done it so many times that it's old, you're not into it anymore, you don't feel enthusiastic, and so it it didn't come across with the, the same the same energy, the same like not to sound too new agey, but I am so whatever. But you know, it's not the same vibration, and yeah. so the it feels more like you're dialing it in, like you're rattling something off from memory rather than delivering something that you feel is really funny. And that so that's not conveying to the crowd. You know what I mean? I do. I think you're right. I think you if know. somebody you know, the, the set that you thought maybe wasn't as up to snuff, like somebody else might could take that same material and it be new to them and and work it out at Mike's for two weeks and then go and do it as a feature set and crush because it's new to them and they're excited about it and whatever. Not you know that never happens. Comedians don't just do other people's sets, but, um, <laughs> well, some of them do. Well, yeah, unless you're <laughs> Carlos Mencia's dumbass. Um, but you know, I, I think a lot of times the, the crowd and they're not sitting there thinking like, well, I can feel that this person's not zealous enough about the material. They don't, they don't know that they're feeling it, but they're feeling it. Totally. You know what I mean? Right, it's yeah. like, it's like a teacher in school. That's like, just reading out of the book and it's just like this and it's monotone and you're like, this person hates their job. They're not right. into this. How am I supposed to be excited about it as a student? Well, they're clearly not excited about it. But then, you know, a teacher, the next the next hour of school is somebody that still loves to teach and they're making it interesting and they're excited, you know? So I, I think a lot of times it, it's, it's that. And I think comedy is like, it's a hundred percent about energy. You know, and like if the host doesn't warm the crowd up, the feature has to. And if the feature can't get them on board, then the headliner is getting an audience that might as well be as cold as when the host came up. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And it's again, it could be like a frustrated wait staff. People waited in line outside for a long time to get in the doors. People feel annoyed. Couples are fighting. Too many people have drank too much. I mean, there's so many things that can can like throw off uh, a performance energetically. You know, yeah. That's why it's so important for rooms to police the room. Don't let drunk people yell shit out. It distracts the entire audience. It distracts a performer. It creates a negative energy field in the whole room. You know, like you ha- you have to have a staff that knows to be quiet and knows how to interact with the crowd. You have to have a crowd that's abiding by the rules and being respectful and attentive. And you have to have a host that's high energy and can get the, you know, is funny enough to get the room on board and, and really make the announcements. You know, a lot of people just get there. Don't please no table talk, turn your cell phones on vibrate. And it's like, no, no, no. They weren't listening to you at all. Explain to them. Be like, Hey guys, do me a favor. Everybody take your phone out and turn on the vibrator silent because it really disrupts the show if it goes off. And please don't look at it. That's distracting too. And if you could, please don't talk at your tables. It distracts the people around you. It distracts the performer. Like explain to them how to yeah. be a good audience. Yeah. Because if, if you don't, then like it's kind of your fault if they're not. You right. know what I mean? I like producing shows for that reason. If I'm there, like I'll print out. I've had shows where I'll, I print out bright yellow pieces of paper that say, 
please just get a drink at the bar and go back to your seat. Please don't congregate at the bar at talk you know please don't talk wow. during the show please don't yell out to the comedians and i'll put them like on the bar and i'll put them in like every third chair on the door coming into the show and dude those are the best shows you could ever imagine the, really? cr- the crowd's just doing exactly you know it's like laugh loud clap have a blast right but don't talk during the show and definitely don't yell shit out during the show if you tell people they'll do it most yeah. of the time. And if they don't, then you just stab them or kick them in the throat. Or- <laughs> well, my problem is like I thrive on those moments when they do that. Like I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't mind being heckled. I mean, I don't like if someone's like, you suck, you know, but almost whatever somebody yells out at me, I can do something w- fun with it. And, yeah. And I, somewhere along the line, and in fact, I remember when it happened, I was at a show and one of my comics got into it I, with this table. I got into it with this table. But in a fun way. Yeah. But then she got into it with this table in a not fun way. Yeah. And really got, it got really awful between them. And, and then throughout the show, because we, we were all on stage the whole time, I did this talk show showcase combo thing. And um, throughout the show, they kept butting heads, you know. And, and I remember that night, I was like, oh, you need to win the audience, not the argument. Yeah, yeah. And the mistake the comics make with the hecklers, they try to win the argument. Yeah. And ever since I realized that difference, I now treat hecklers totally differently. And I, you know, I just, I have fun with them and I try not to give them too much attention because, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, nice. So you want to talk a little more than you need to. You know, I try to, I try to rein them in, but in a way that's fun for them and everyone else. The problem is, I'm not shutting it down enough for the next comic. Totally. You know, I'm like, I'm setting a tone that like, as long as you heckle well, it's okay. The comics yeah. will do it. like, man, this is fun. Yeah, right. And, Here, and that comedian really liked that. Yeah. 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 So it's, 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 that's the thing that I, that I've had to figure out, you know, and I will sometimes say like, all right, now I like people who echo, but you know, you could ha- you can mess with me. I'm the host, but don't mess with the comics. Cause you that's, know, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think I struggle with that. I, I instantly, when somebody's heckling, I instantly feel like uh, I want to destroy this person. <laughs> you uh, know, yeah. it's hard for me to like have fun with it because I think it's it's annoying and it's disrespectful. It's disruptive to the show, and I mean, it's something I need to work on. My, my ex girlfriend would always be like. You can't be mean to people like that. Yeah. You told that lady to kill herself. Like, well, <laughs> for the record, I did mean that. So, <laughs> but I mean, people will just start talking, and I'll just be like, hey, do me a favor. Uh, never fucking talk again for the rest of your life. Can you do that? Can you never make another word? Can you get your larynx removed? Everybody in the crowd wishes you would. And I'll destroy them. And, it, you know, 50% of the time, people are like, dude, that was awesome. Yeah. And, then, and then the other percent of the time, like, the crowd's like, man, this guy's a real dude. You know, and you you lose the audience because you were too mean or whatever. But uh, that's that's something I that that is also like one of my least favorite parts of comedy when somebody because I'm more of a I want to perform my material that I've spent the last nine years writing. You know what I mean? And it's like any interruption is is time lost or it's like, well, probably can't do that tag or that joke now because, I, you know. I only have X amount of time, so. But I need I need to I need to get better at rolling with the, rolling with the punches and. I mean, it's a they're they're stylistic choices. I mean, yeah. My one of my favorite comics is Bobby Slayton. He's a, 
the things he says on stage are truly horrible, a lot of them. Yeah. That's not what my favorite part about him is, although I do find him funny, albeit I know he's offensive. But his style is, his, the way he interweaves crowd work with material is seamless. Yeah. And no one can say anything to him. He's such, he's so good at putting people in their place. Even yeah. when they're being nice, he puts you in your place. You know, yeah. it's like, even on Facebook, he puts his friends in his place. Like when I talk to him, every once in a while, I'll exchange text messages with him. And he will shut me down at some point, either the first message back or the tenth message back. But at some point, the conversation ends when he insults me. Yeah. You know, and not because I'm mad. I'm just like, all right, it peaked. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but but his ability to roll with whatever happens is something that I really have grown to appreciate. And, yeah. And so I try to emulate that, not his, not to be like him, but just that that ability to sure. like, to to roll with it. But you don't have to, man. I mean, you know, it's like. Lots of comics don't want to do that, yeah. and and that's okay. Like you're you're you you're here because you there's something you want to say, and that's what you're here to do, you know. Yeah. And and uh, I think that's great. I mean, I've just learned that like when I go into a and this is just me when I go into a set too wedded to any kind of plan, oh, it yeah. never goes well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'll write a set lit. I mean, I almost never do anymore, but occasionally I'll. I'd be like, all right, I'm gonna have a really tight set. Like I'm gonna, I'm, I know exactly what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do this, and so I'll just write out a set list so I can see it visibly, right? To kind of get it in my head before I go up there, and I'll step on stage and be like, nope, I'm not doing any of that. Like <laughs> the moment I step on stage, I just start doing something else, and in my head, I'm like, what am I doing? I had a set list. What, where, what is all of this? You know, but I, I think you have one of the um, the best openers. Of any comic I've ever seen. Oh, thanks. Like, uh, I will say a lot of nice things to you today, and I mean them all, <laughs> just to be clear. Like, I'm not kissing up. I mean, it's, it's no, a chance for you to that. publicly say the things that I feel positively about. But sure. they're all genuine. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important as a comic is to know how to reset a room. Yeah. Whether the person to be for you did badly or did well, you still got to get the stink of them off the stage, positive yep. or negative, yep. and you got to make it about you. And the way you open your shows with that prayer fucking does that. And it's so hilarious and so great. And at first people are like, seriously, we got to pray right now? Like, yeah. you know, the whole room tightens up the second you do. Oh, yeah. You know, except for the four or five born again Christians who are immediately disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <they're laughs> you like, know? Hell yeah. But, but that is a great open. And Thanks, where man. did you, where did, how did that piece start for you? And, and where did that come from? So it actually started because I had this bit that I don't even do anymore, but it was, uh, this was pretty early on in comedy, maybe a few years in. And the, the premise was basically, you know, taking the Adam and Eve and Adam and Steve, uh, nonsensical, right. Evangelical cliche and Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And taking that and saying, yeah, well, Adam and Eve only had, sons they had two sons right and according to your book adam and eve populated the earth so it was also cain and eve not <laughs> cain and steve so in other words you can bang your mom but just don't do any gay shit you know <laughs> but people it was so i mean it was that it was, it was a it lot was for so abrasive yeah, that yeah. even liberal people were like oh you can't say that yeah and so i i kind of did the prayer so I kind of started doing the redneck character and the prayer uh, 
I, I mean, I started the redneck character as soon as I started doing stand up, And that's been like part of my sense of humor my whole life is like, as soon as I have three or four drinks, everything I say, I'm going to be like, hey, man, y'all want to party or what? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I instantly become that dude. Like, and anything that I say that's sarcastic or like uh, satirical, I almost always say it in this like dumb Southern voice. Uh, you know, if I'm going to say something ignorant, I'm going to say it in that voice. And I've always been that way. So I started using the redneck character really, I think my first open mic and it just, I just never stopped. Um, but the prayer, I kind of, I worked that Adam and Eve bit into the prayer and it felt like I'm in the redneck character and I'm in a prayer. So I'm like, I'm like kind of two layers removed from really just me myself. And it felt like it was easier to get away with saying something that might be a little hard to for the audience to digest if I don't say it as me. You know right. what I mean? And I and I think well I know other comedians definitely do that. Like I was listening to a Daniel Tosh hour that my one of my friends had on her like iPod or whatever. We were driving back from a hike the other day and he's like doing a whole bit and he does like some kind of different voice. And you know how Daniel Tosh kind of like, he does like a play for play of his comedy while he's doing his comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, you see what I did there? I just added another tag just to make that joke longer and I lost most of you, but this guy's laughing. You know, like, <laughs> he kind of tells you what he's doing with his yeah. comedy and he said, he's like, see how I just used another voice to to make myself not liable for saying that awful thing, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, I do that, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, so I started I started doing it, and it, man, it just, it just stuck, you know? And people, it, it, it works so well, and people like it so much that it's kind of hard to let go of it. And, and it's become a little bit of a crutch. Like, it's a little bit hard for me to come on stage and start a set without doing the prayer. So yeah. I've been... I've been working on starting differently, but, um, but yeah. And, and it's, you know, I enjoy being in the redneck character and be and saying things that are facetious and sort of like over the top, um, you know, all the way, one way, like evangelical concert, you know, I'll say like, you know, Lord, thank you that we finally got us a Christian president. You know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> and obviously I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, but occasionally there's a dum dum in the crowd that's like, that's not funny. And like, actually, it is funny. Won't you shut the fuck up and let me finish? But, uh, but yeah, man, I, it's just kind of one of those things. Occasionally, if I'm doing an hour, I'll stay in that redneck character for 20 or 30 minutes. Really? And, and then when I come out of it, people. People are like shocked. Yeah. Like they they're like, Nope, bring that dude back. That's who we have gotten to know. That's yeah. who we feel close to. That is a risk. Totally. That man. is a, I remember It'll, the first time I saw you do it, it was at the comedy zone and uh, I forget who you're opening for. And it was, you know, it was one of those times it was one of those times where you were stronger than the headliner. Mm. And which probably why I can't remember who it was. But, you know, I also understood it because you're doing your best 20 and yeah. they're doing an hour that sure. they're working on. You sure, know, like, totally. And so that's just the way it is. But anyhow, I remember, and you pulled out of that character and I was like, holy shit, you know? And it was also like, there was a moment of like, wow, that was, 
I don't know how I feel about being deceived like that. You know? <laughs> and the thing is, like, they're not, you said you do it, so it's not you saying that stuff, but people don't know it's a character. Right. So it is you. Like, they, right, are, right. they are holding you accountable for all that shit until you come out of it. Sure, sure. And, and, uh, but it was funny. Like, and then I saw, I remember, you know, I saw you again not that long after that. And, uh, you know, and that was your, that's your feature set. And, yeah. and I was like, I was waiting for that moment for the crowd's reaction. You know, yeah, I was yeah. like excited for it because yeah. I was like, oh, these poor people, they don't know what's going to hit them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, it was great. And as far as the headliner feature stuff, I think a lot of times too, I think that, that energetically the feature spot on the show is the, that's the hot spot. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, like I, money aside and, yeah, for and sure. whatever, <laughs> I would rather feature, right. you know, you can really like do your tightest most kind of laughs per minute, like really punched up tight set. And you're going up there's everybody's still sober. They're still awake. They're still engaged, you know, and the headliner comes up sometimes, especially if a show's not run well, you come up and there's, you know, there was a host that did 10 and there was a guest spot that did eight. And then the feature did 35, you know, yeah. I mean? and, or you're doing one of these indie shows where you're like, okay, you're going to headline. We've got 11 people that are going to do <laughs> 10 minutes a piece before you. And you're coming up. You at, just go last. Yeah. We're going to call you the headliner. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, and I mean, a lot of great shows that I love, like Star Bar in Atlanta. Like I love doing that show. I love Rodney. I, I love the crowds are awesome, but like, the headliner spot is not the ideal spot because it's like a three hour show. So right. you're, you're going last and half the crowd might be gone. You know what yeah. I mean? And you're the person getting paid at the end, but you're not getting the, the, the best spot. You're and getting paid to still be there. Right. <laughs> you're, you're getting, you're not getting the best spot energetically. So I think a lot of times that, and that's something that I've had to learn now as a headliner is like, I want. I don't want it to be more than like thirty minutes before I go up there because right. I want the crowd to still be engaged and awake. And and I've stood in the back of the room and thought, man, shit, I gotta follow this person. Yeah. I mean, there's a dude named Anthony K in Modesto, California, who's become become one of my good friends. And several times I've had to follow him, and I'm standing in the back of the room thinking, like, this sucks because this he's so funny. Nobody should have to follow him. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Avery Moore, a, a girl out of uh, Austin, Texas, I've had to follow her a couple of times. And the same deal, like, I'm in the back of the room and she's just destroying. And it's like, let's just end the show. That was like <laughs> headliner material. Like, let's yeah. just, I'll do, I'll do another show tomorrow. You know, like, when people are that funny. And so, you know, I know what, I know what it's like now to be, to be kind of like, waiting to go on stage thinking like, man, can you get somebody like just 10% less funny to go yeah. before me? So that's something I learned recently is like a lot of headliners, they'll, they'll pick their own feature because they want someone, they don't want someone funny. They want someone who's in the neighborhood of funny. Right. Oh, what, absolutely. They want know. somebody that's like B plus. Yeah. They don't right. want somebody that's a plus. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't mean that as an insult, as an insult to people that are touring with headliners, but like I've had some of my close friends be like, Hey man, why, why have no headliners like taking you on the road with them? And I'm like, well, it's either cause I'm like unlikable or hard to follow. I'm yeah. hoping it's cause I'm hard to follow, <laughs> but it might be both. Uh, it's possible. 
But it's like, you know, I, I do. I, I will I will intentionally, when I'm able to bring a feature, I'll intentionally bring people who are strong as shit. Because yeah. I, I know it makes me a better comic. And that ultimately, that's my goal, you know? Well, I mean, you have Petey open for you when you're in Asheville. And he's one of the strongest comics I've ever seen on stage. Like, he's so funny, He dude. is so funny. And talk about a guy who resets the room, man. Yeah. I doesn't. Whenever I host like the, the open mics that go on forever here, you know, um, whenever I host that, I'm real careful where I put him. Yeah. I, I usually put him after someone who I have to put up sooner than I'd like. And they're a wild card. Sometimes they'll kill and sometimes they'll flatten the room. Yeah. And so and now I really regret saying that now in case anybody in Asheville ever listens to this. They'll wait, know there before wait, Petey, Petey always really... goes after me. <laughs> Am I not good? I am so bad at keeping my mouth shut. But I will put someone up hypothetically who uh, you know who I don't know how they're going to do. And I'll put him after them because no matter how they do, he's going to do great and he's going to bring the room back to level. And so... I love that you bring him because it shows that you're not afraid of who you're following. Like that's that's the sign of a great comic to me. It's like and Joe Rogan says it all the time. He used to bring Joey Diaz with him. Yeah. Now Joey's, you know, he's just too big, but he's like Joey destroys the room. Just oh, yeah. murders every time and he's like it makes me have to be better. I want to have to follow someone that good. Well, I have bad news, Mr. Rogan. It's not working. <laughs> Joey Diaz is still a lot funnier than you. <laughs> and so are your other openers. Oh, do you, so are you someone who doesn't find Rogan funny? Uh, I don't dislike the guy. I mean, I certainly respect the shit out of what he's built. I mean, oh, yeah. he's, he's just he's... so influential. Uh, and I, you know, I, like the, I like the intellect of the podcast. I, I honestly don't listen to it a whole lot. Um, but I, I don't really enjoy his stand up that much. I don't hate it, yeah. but I just I watch it and I think like I think I'm I think I'm funnier than he is. I think I you know like somebody give me a fucking Netflix special. <laughs> uh, I, like I don't dislike the guy, and I and I certainly again I I respect what he his hustle and the hard work that I know it, it for sure took yeah. to get to that level. But yeah, he's not even he's not in my top thirty. I would say, but. Um, but yeah, there, there's comics like I mean I noticed like Burt Kreischer for example who who destroys uh, I've seen him live and it was just like like his special was was good but what I saw him do live the special was just not even close you know so he's because I haven't seen him live I've only seen his specials man I, it's t- it's totally different I really? don't know what it is about it but like. And I don't know if maybe somebody he's got handlers who are saying like, "Well, do this for the special, or don't do that." You know, I don't know. And, and and I think that last one he put out, I think that some of that was like newer material, maybe. But man, when I saw him live, I don't, I don't think I've ever felt the room be that electric. Really? And a lot of and a lot of it is that his, it's all his fans. It's packed with his fans right. specifically. That helps. Probably at least ninety percent of the people there know exactly who he is, and they came to see him. Um, and he's got that reputation for being like party guy drinking, he takes his shirt off. So the crowd's all drinking. It's kind of boisterous, you right. know? Uh, but man, I mean, he killed, so I, I opened for him at, at Zany's in Nashville mm. and he killed so hard, dude. It was unbelievable. And I was just like shit faced out of my mind too. That was part of it. But cause everybody was like, yeah. dude, Burt Kreischer just parties, dude. You, are you going to party? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to party. I'm going to party. <laughs> so I was just drinking glass. I was drinking like pint glasses of Red Bull and vodka with oh. very little Red Bull in oh it. Oh my God. It, oh it, dude. And then at the end I was like, Burt, are we partying? He was like, I actually got an early flight tomorrow. <laughs> You're like, I was like, really? Cause I can't see right now. So <laughs> there's a, there's a picture of us 
floating around on the internet, both of us with our shirts off. That's and, great. Uh, but yeah, he takes people on the road that are like just killer. I mean, he had Nate Bargatze opening for him. Yeah, Nate's so strong. Uh, my buddy Dave Williamson opens for him all the time, and Dave's like killer. He opened for me this summer because he just happened to be in town where I was right. doing a show, and uh, I was. It was another one of those like I was in the back of the room, like oh, I gotta follow Dave. This yeah. is brutal. <laughs> He's super funny, man. Dave Williamson. He he does the. Um, the Gundo Comedy Festival in El Segundo. Okay. He's a he's a really great comic. Super nice dude too. But uh have you performed have you ever done like the comedy store or I've done the comedy places? store. Yeah, I've done some pretty big rooms. I've done uh I've done the stand, I've done Caroline's on Broadway, I've done the comedy store, I've done the Hollywood improv. I've never done the cellar. It, it that takes a long like, you know, yeah. you, you can't just Nobody's gonna. I don't think you can even go in on a on a nod from somebody. I think you kind of have to like live in New York and work up to it or whatever. But, um, but you know, honestly, I, I'm really kind of more focused on touring and like getting paid to do stand up. You right. know, I think a lot of people they get a tight five or a tight ten or a tight thirty or whatever whatever it is that they have. And they go, okay, it's time to move to New York and get a break. Right. And then it's like 10 years of being in New York and still not being able to go tour and make money. You know right. what I mean? And I think the other avenue is do is doing is skipping all that, you know? Because like you can move to New York and you might get somebody might find you after six months and be like, Man, you're great. You wanna you wanna do the tonight show? You know, and you might go do the tonight show, but you you might still not be able to headline clubs with just the Tonight Show right. reference if the clubs don't know you and people aren't vouching for you and you know so it's it's kind of like it's you kind of have to do one or the other or you have a viral video or, or whatever a blog or podcast that really boosts you you know yeah. that, that sort of uh, expedites your 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 climbing of the ladder but. For me, I kind of decided like I don't want I don't want to live in New York. I don't really want to live in L.A. And I'm just gonna go try to. I'm gonna lower my personal overhead to the point that I can survive on very little money, and I'm gonna go tour and just slowly build a network around the country where I I know I can always stay busy, and I'll kind of make my own stuff happen. I'm not gonna wait for like quote unquote gatekeepers to decide I'm good enough. I'm gonna right. just go do it. And, uh, and I'm hoping that eventually I can, I can create and produce my own comedy special and get it bought without whoever, you know, without comedy central or without comedy dynamics, I just create it and sell it. It's the way to do it, man. I mean, Netflix will buy your special if they think they can do something with it, you know, like, and if you just bring it to them and it's done, I think you got a much better shot than getting them to foot the bill on making it oh, and, totally. all, and produce yeah. it and all that stuff. You yeah, know? they won't do that. I know some some really successful, bigger name comics that I've heard say like they tried to get Netflix to to do a special for them and Netflix right. wouldn't. I mean, these are people, I won't say who, but these are people I'm like, holy shit. Right, they're they big turn- enough you'd think the answer would be yes. Oh, and funny. And not, yeah. not just well-known, but like some of the best comics I know have said like, you know, you've got to create it and take it to them, you know? I wonder what uh, what their criteria are 
because they're they're releasing one stand-up special a week. That's their thing right now. And some of them are not Yeah, they're not all they're not all equal. Um <laughs> some of them however are fucking amazing. Like, oh yeah, of course. And some of them are like are really cool that they happened. Yeah. Maybe not amazing, but they're cool. Yeah, like, yeah. Um there's just a lot of yeah, there's just there's a lot of good talent out there. And I just wonder what makes it happen. I guess they're kind of doing those they've got a lot of those like 15 minute or half hour yeah. like kind of step first step specials where yep. people get you know they get a shorter six set six comets doing 15 minutes or yeah. yeah and and so they have those going that's maybe a way to test people and see how they do um so that's kind of interesting uh, i think amazon is a, actually an easier sell to get your thing on amazon cuz i know that they will put stuff up if they think it can get any traction and they just don't pay you for it you just get a piece of every time somebody watches it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, there's a little bit less, um, upfront for them. Yeah. You know, maybe Netflix has a similar model as well, but, but I just, I know somebody who has a show that's on Amazon and he sort of built it up on YouTube and then sold it to Amazon had to take it off YouTube, which was a great day for him. Wow. And, but I don't, but they didn't, I don't think they paid him to do it. They just allowed him to be on the platform. Yeah. And then, you know, he just like every time somebody watches it, he gets a nickel or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, it's not a, a lot. It's like it, the metaphor is like consignment versus somebody buying your product outright. Right. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll put it out there for you and give you X, X percentage, but we're not going to just buy it. But nobody knows. For a set amount. Nobody knows. Everyone just sees your shits on Amazon or Netflix. Or I mean, who, sure. who gives a shit? I mean, for your, yeah. for your, who cares? It's a loss leader. Oh, like, I would I would gladly break even... I don't want to lose money to get a special on Netflix, but I would gladly break even to get a special on Netflix just because I know what it would do for my career. I mean, if I felt like I had a good enough hour, I would go in the hole for that. Yeah. It's an investment. Sure. You know, I mean, I've I've made dumber investments. Oh, absolutely. You know. All of my investments have been dumber, (laughs) including my marriage. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. You were married when I met you. Oh, Oh, man, I'm sorry about that. You sure tell a funny story about it, though, man. I mean... (laughs) Well, that's really, like, if you're if your wife's gonna cheat on you, just keep your fingers crossed that she does it in a hilarious way that <laughs> results in like a twenty minute strong. 20 yeah, minute uh, you got a strong twenty minutes on it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Man. I have and, a girlfriend who cheated on me, and I got a strong two minutes on it. Yeah, but it's part of like a six minute thing that's pretty much my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, like I have really dialed it in. But yeah. it's not just the cheating. It's like that's just the, that's a springboard for all this other stuff. Sure. Um, but I wouldn't trade it. I'd rather she didn't cheat on me. And yeah. I, I could have written something else. <laughs> yeah. I, like my thing is like, I'm glad my marriage is over, but I, it kind of sucks how it ended. You yeah. know, I would have rather her just been like, Hey, I'm thinking about banging other people. Let's get a divorce. And I would have been like, I'm so glad you suggested that. <laughs> how are you? If you don't mind my asking, uh, I was pretty devastated when my girlfriend cheated on me. I mean, it was. I was fucked up, good and fucked up for a very long time. Yeah. And uh, how, I mean, were you, how, how was it? Were you okay? Were you kind of on your way out? And you can, you can talk about this as much or as little as you want. Oh, sure. But I'm just interested. No, I'm an like, open book, man. Um, I, so my, my thing, and I kind of talk about this on stage sometimes, not all the time, but I, uh, it's going kind of further back, making it a long story, uh, I quit school at 21 and got a sales job at a Mercedes dealership and sold a lot of cars because I'm, you know, I'm just an, I'm an extrovert class clown 
kind of guy and I like cars. Yeah. And so I sold a lot of cars and I, I started making money for the first time in my life. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do with it. And, you know, growing up, my dad kind of taught me how to work on cars. I knew how to do like body work and simple mechanics. He also taught me like basic carpentry, building a deck, how to tile a floor, you know, so I kind of had a decent, uh, foundation of those skills. So I talked him into helping me get a loan at 21 and I, I had the cash to, to get it started, but I needed, I needed a loan. And so I bought a house, I renovated it, I rented it. Then I went to the bank and said, Hey, I got this house with this much equity and I got a renter in there. I need to buy a house for me to live in. Right. Wink, wink. And so they gave me another primary mortgage. Then I rented that one after six months. And then I went back to the bank and they're like, you can't, you're 21. We can't give you a third mortgage. (laughs) So then I got an investor to loan me the money for the next one. Then I got a partner on the next one. So by 24, I had five rental houses here in Asheville, mm. and uh, I moved to the coast and started doing it there. I was trying to I was trying to get rentals in both places, you know, a kind of a a, a foundation uh, doing real estate investing in both places because I wanted to split my time between the coast and the mountains. So I was doing really well, and then 2008 happened, and I was just I was so over leveraged and spread so thin financially, and I was I was young. I didn't have a lot of cash reserves, and so kind of a slow process. But it, over the course of several years, I lost my ass. I literally lost mm-hmm. everything. And so leading up to my wife cheating that year, within about I guess within about eighteen months total, I lost my business. I, I closed my business. I had to for financial reasons. I just kind of hit obstacles I couldn't overcome. So I closed my business. Not long after that, I lost my house that I was living in. I'd lived in for like 10 years. Um, And then my dog died. And then a month after that, my dad died. And then 10 months after that, my wife was unfaithful. And so it was like a year and a half of just really heavy losses and emotional stuff. And, uh, but luckily I had been, you know, I've always kind of been, um, like, uh, I don't know, I don't know the best word, but like seeking, you know, seeking sort of a spiritual truth. Like, well, Mm. I know what I don't believe, but I, I need to find out what I do believe and like, you know, kind of meaning of life type of stuff. I've read a lot of, uh, Buddhist teachings and I read the Tao and, you know, different, spiritual books and I had I had been kind of on that path for I guess my whole adult life but I had started reading Eckhart Tolle uh leading up you know several years leading up to this storm and uh I still wasn't where I am now spiritually you know with, with my own like inner peace and joy and calmness but I was in a place where I I felt like I was conscious enough that that stuff didn't devastate me. Mm. It had it had all of that happened a few years sooner. I don't know how I would have coped or or how long it would have taken me to come out of it or whatever. But as it was happening, I was it sucked for sure. But I was able to like, for the most part, I was able to find a silver lining and like, well, you know, I'm losing this house, but 
That was a big house. It was a lot to take care of. It was stressful not knowing what was going to happen financially. And it feels like a weight off my shoulders. And, you know, when the dog died, I was like, well, I had the dog for 15 years and he had a great life and we had all these memories. You know, I mean, I was, even when my dad died, I got to see this really profound love between my parents and, and between my family and love from our community. And, you know, and, and so there was, there was always like something beautiful inside that heavy thing. And like, and sort of this knowing that like this hard shit is what's going to, this is going to make me a better person one way or another. It's going to make me stronger. It's going to make me more humble and more, more aware, um, more compassionate, whatever it is. So when, when the cheating finally rolled around, that was kind of like the icing on, on a pretty shitty cake. Um, you know, I think for maybe two or three weeks, I was, my ego was fully activated. I was feeling a lot of emotional pain, but, but simultaneously relieved that my marriage was over and I'm not, I wasn't the one that had to do it. Mm. Cause I was so, it was, it was toxic and I, I was unhappy a lot of the time. And I had, I had sort of tried to leave a couple of times and she would like, you know, when I say not let me, she wasn't holding a gun to my head, but she would have these meltdowns and it would be like, yeah, this kind of this, I can't live without you thing. And, and, and I'm going to change and we're going to fix this and it's going to be better. And, um, just, just a lot of just hurtful shit over the course of seven years or whatever it was that we were together. Um, so finally when she cheated, it was like, okay, well now I can walk away and nobody can, I'm not the bad guy. Like this isn't, I didn't choose this. And, uh, she still did a pretty good job of making me the bad guy somehow. (laughs) It's called gaslighting. But, uh, she, she was like, you're a narcissist. I'm like, you cheated on me with multiple people and lied about it and got your friends to lie to me about it. I'm I a narcissist. Do you know what narcissist means? Uh, um, it means exactly what she described right. as herself. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a mirror over there? Yeah. But it, it was hard. And, and I, I think the thing I focus, uh, the, the thing I, I struggle with the most is I, I am still like, a little angry about, you know, I haven't fully overcome that. Mm. And I think anger is ultimately is just pain, but, um, but it, you know, it's hard to forgive somebody that never really apologized, you know, but, um, but long story short, I, even while it was happening, like even while I'm learning about the infidelity, I, I, as mad and as sad as I was, I was thinking like, this is fucking hilarious. Yeah. Like you're starting, this to is going to kill. You know? <laughs> and I had to headline a show the night that she finally confessed. Cause I, I had heard from another person. You've heard all this on stage, but like I, a- I had heard from an acquaintance. Somebody called me and said, Hey, I want to give you a heads up. Your wife's cheating on you. Here's the story. And I didn't believe him at first. And mm. like the more I thought about it, I was like, man, there's no rational explanation for this. this has to be true, you know? Yeah. And I confronted her. She lied for days. Other people lied to me too. And finally, long story short, I, I got into her phone, something I've never done. And, 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 and want to, I don't want to be in a relationship where you have to do that kind of shit, but got into her phone and saw all these messages and I was like, okay, this is, yeah. this is true. So then I confronted her and, and, 
she, I think she probably only told me 10% of the truth, but it was enough that it was like, that was, <laughs> you really only needed 1%. Yeah. That's enough I, if, I, with this I, kind of truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there's, I think there's probably more infidelity than I realized, but I, I don't, I don't need to know about it. It would only, oh, God, it would only yeah. I mean, compound the, the hurtfulness of it. But, uh, it was enough that I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm, there's that's, this is unfixable, and uh, and it wasn't even just the infidelity; it was the dishonesty and the like, the bizarre, the bizarreness of it, the manipulation, yeah. and just really, really crazy shit. And so, but I had to headline a show that night, <laughs> and so I'm driving to the. It was two hours away. I, it was when I was living in Wilmington. The show was in Raleigh, and uh, and I'm driving to the show doing this bit to myself over and over adding ta- like like doing right. the bit redoing it adding a tag and the the bit that I do about her cheating is like I I really pretty much wrote the whole thing that day and it's changed a little bit over the past couple years but not a whole lot yeah but I did it that night I went on stage and I was like I found out this morning that my wife cheated on me and the crowd's like, holy shit. You yeah. know I mean? I, I'm looking at people and they have this look on their face like, right. is this real? But uh, I got a standing ovation at the end. I think it was a, it was a standing pity ovation, but it's still... Oh, whatever, dude. Who cares why they're standing? Right. It went well, <laughs> though. It went well. And I That's was just great. like, man, this is, you know... It, it, no, it, I remember being a young guy and I, I grew up in Gastonia, North Carolina. So like, it's... It's uh, it's kind of a rough, you know, it's kind of a rough town. I mean, it, it just statistically, it mm. just is. And so those, you know, there's a lot of like little scuffles and stuff as a kid. And I remember I didn't get in a ton of fights, but I got in a handful. And I remember being so scared to get punched in the face. I'm like, man, I I didn't. I just for whatever reason. I just thought like that's gotta be like the worst. That's gotta hurt so bad. Like I had this like really strong fear of getting punched in the face. And finally one day I got punched in the face and I was like, you know what? That wasn't that bad. Yeah. And now I'm not scared to get punched in the face anymore. Right, 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 right. And so all those things that happened, failing and losing everything and losing my wife and losing, you know, my dog dying, my dad dying, all those things that these kind of heavy existential sort of uh, profound experiences that we all dread and fear. But once they've happened to you and you keep living and the sun comes up the next day and, and you're still healthy and, and there and you know what I mean? And, and it's like, it, it, it almost makes you feel unshakable. You know, yeah. if you can get through those hard things and like, like, man, I was so afraid of losing my parents, losing my dad, and, I, and it sucked. I certainly wish he was here, but he, he, nobody lives forever. Um, but once it happens and you're kind of like, okay, I'm okay. Everything, everything's fine, and it just is what it is, and you move forward. And, um, you know, it's a, it, the whole cliche, like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We're all you know, cliches are cliches for a reason, but like that's, it's, it's such a true one, you know, it's like, it really does strengthen you, uh, as a person. So anyway, that was a super long answer, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy to not be in a toxic marriage anymore, you know, to be, I would rather be 
alone. I would rather spend the rest of my life alone than be with someone that that doesn't uh, that doesn't love in a healthy way and that doesn't support me and you know that doesn't believe in what I'm trying to do. And because for me, it was like. I had gone through this thing where I lost, I lost everything. I, I had five rental houses by 24 and then by 34, I had nothing, you know? Right. And so, um, if you haven't experienced that, you don't get it. You don't get what that person went through and how that changed them. And so my wife was, she was very much about money and she, she always had it. She grew up with it and, and she wanted it and she wanted me to have it and make it. And, and my thing was like, Hey, I've, I've had money and I've made money and I lost it all. And I'm happier now than I was when I had the money and I want to be a comedian and comedians don't make money. So you're going to yeah. have to either find another dude <laughs> or accept that, yeah. you know, because in comedy, you'd like, you either make it or you don't. And, in, and until you make it, you're not making it, you know, you, and it happens quick. It's like right. you get a special or you get late shows or you get a festival and then you get an agent and then you get a TV spot, whatever happens. But it's you go from struggling, 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 and that might be 10 years. And then on the 11th year, your income goes up by, you know, 500 percent, you know, right. but it's like. Until that happens, it's a hustle, and you don't do it for the money. If anybody that's doing comedy for the money, hopefully, is quitting after like a week. <laughs> well, if they're doing it for the money, they probably will quit after a week. Exactly. So, what was the transition for you getting into comedy? Like, what made you go on stage for the first time? What? what how did that happen? So, uh, kind of leading up to all the stuff I just described—that that that tough year and a half. Um, the couple years before that wasn't a whole lot easier, but I, my dad had cancer. My sister, uh, had been in and out of the hospital with, we thought she may not survive with acute liver failure. My dad was doing chemo and I was in another kind of like Rocky relationship. Are you seeing a pattern here? (laughs) No. And I was going through all that financially. That was, you know, this was kind of like 2011. I was really starting to feel the effects of like, when's the economy going to get better? When am I going to be able to sell these properties that I'm, you know, I was like selling my possessions to try and pay mortgages that I couldn't afford to pay. Um, So I was kind of in the middle of that financial shit and like just a lot of heavy stuff. I was struggling and, um, I've always loved stand up. I've always watched specials to the point that I would literally memorize them. Um, and but I had never lived in a town that I that I know of that had a comedy scene. You know, smaller cities having comedy scenes is a relatively new phenomena. Right. You know, and so I started to hear through the grapevine that a comedy club was opening in Wilmington, and they were doing open mics. And, uh, and I've, I've always kind of been like class clown type of character. So f- friends were like, dude, you gotta go do it. You tell that story about blah, blah, blah. Like you gotta go do it, man. You got to. And so I went one week and I just watched and I watched and I thought like, 
yeah, I, I can do this. Like that dude's funny, but I'm funnier than that guy. You know, yeah. it's just kind of like I wanted to get a feel for it and make sure that I felt like I could get up there. And I was very, very terrified to fail. Hmm. Well, I wasn't terrified to do it, but I was really terrified to not do it well. And so I worked on my set literally every day for a week. And that was when I still had the recycling business. And I had basically my friends working with me. And so I'd be driving a recycling truck all day with one of my friends in the passenger seat. And I'm just like working material on them. And they're like, yeah, dude, it's funny. I get it. (laughs) I get it. It's funny. I'm telling you. Like, you don't need to do it anymore. It's funny. Do it on stage. And so I felt pretty confident. Like, I, I had really worked it out on the phone with friends and with employees. And just like, I spent a week really dialing it in and making sure it was good. And I got up there and it went really really well oh, okay and uh and like i came off stage and the owner of the club was like was that really your first time yeah i was like yeah he's like dude you got to keep doing it and so i went back and i being naive and not really understanding stand up uh you know on, on an intricate level and writing i just thought it was super lame that people did the same material every week right and so for about probably two months I did a different set every week for two months and you know, some were better than others, but it was all, it would be totally different material, which I don't, I don't even know if I could do that now if I tried. Yeah. Five new minutes a week. That's a lot. Yeah. But I, but by doing that within six months, I had a a really tight 30 that I was proud of. Like some Mm. of my oldest videos on YouTube, the 20 and 30 minute videos are from six months in. Um, but by writing that way, trying to do a different different material every week, it helped me build long sets quick, you know. So within I guess within about a year I was featuring at least on a small level, you know, just right. around North and South Carolina. And uh and then about a year and a half I got in with Comedy Zone. I sent them a thirty minute video and they watched it and they really liked it. And they just assumed that I was a headliner. No. And I didn't tell them otherwise. Right. And so the first gig they ever gave me was to headline. And I was thrilled. You know, it was like 300 bucks or something. And I was like, I'm the man. I got 300 bucks and a hotel. Like, (laughs) yeah. And I went and I I had a great, I mean, I did, I did 53 minutes. I, great show everybody was like buying me beers afterwards i thought like man i killed that like i'm a headliner like every show is gonna be a headliner and then somehow and i think i know who told them and it it's and i've had to really let go of my my feelings about it but somebody told them like hey you know that guy's only been doing comedy for like a year and a half right and so then they after that they were like hey how long have you been doing stand-up yeah. and i was like oh about a year and a half and like, yeah, okay. Well, we can feature you. And I was like, yeah, but you already headlined me, and it went well. Like, why? Right. And so it took me like another maybe three years to get them to headline me again. Um, and that was frustrating because it's like there's these these rules of comedy. Like, well, you can't headline unless you've been doing it for five years minimum. You know, it's like. Well, the thing about sure that can. is, is like you did really well, and that's great. Yeah. But are you going to, I mean, you can't just have 53 minutes. You have to have 200 minutes. Sure. So that you can do whatever 53 minutes that room's going to require. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and 
So I get it. Like I get yeah. it from your point of view. I also get it from their point of view. Like they just can't risk it. Like they, yeah, yeah. They didn't know the flying leap they took, and it just happened to go well. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I get it. I've, I mean, every time I talk to a, I, I have a woman who I'm really one of my mentors. I'm sure you know her, Janet Williams. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, whenever she's like, she's like, Jason, how much time do you have? I said, Well, right now I've got a really solid thirty. She's like, Okay, so ten. You know, and she's like, whatever people tell me, I cut it in half at least, you know? Yeah, yeah. And because it's, there's just no way that whatever they think they have, that it's all the same grade. Sure, You know, and I mean, I actually do think I have a pretty solid 30 now, but Mm -hmm. I also know, like, it depends on the room. Might not work everywhere. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I've got, I mean, I've got, I always tell people, like, I'm confident at 30, I could do okay at 40. It's a little rough around 50, and I would not have me do an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's just, it just, it's amazing. It's just the degradation of your material sure. is significant. Yeah. You know? My, for whatever reason, and I think I'm just superfluous. I'm, I'm talking, you can tell on this, this podcast. No, you're doing I, great. I'm talkative and, uh, and I, I have a hyperactive mind, and I sincerely do better the longer the set, mm. like watching me do a five minute set. You're like, man, that dude's way more funny when he does an hour <laughs> or an hour and a half for that yeah. matter. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that th- there are some parameters that like, you know, everybody needs to, to, to sort of like go through the steps and, and, you know, kind of, um, earn their chops and whatever. But I also think that in comedy, we make up rules that, don't apply to everybody. And I'm not saying me specifically, but like I remember being in the, you know, whatever comedy Facebook group, comedy networking or whatever it was. One of these things, it's supremely unhelpful. <laughs> uh, it's just comedians insulting each other. Yeah. Like this is for getting better. Like, no, it's not. Yeah. Um, but somebody was for saying feeling worse. <laughs> yeah. Somebody was talking about like, I'm ready to feature and everybody's like, how long you been doing it? And they're like two years. And everybody's like, there's no way you can feature two years. And, and I chimed in and I was like, Hey, I, I feature all over the country and I'm two years and I headline whenever somebody will let me. And people, there's no way I was like, well, I'm telling you I'm doing it and right. it's going well and they keep booking me. So like, but then, and not just to talk about myself, but I've seen some young comics. There's a comedian in, in Wilmington named Julia Desmond who's like, I don't know, she's 20 or 21 or something. And uh, and I think she's only been doing it for maybe like two years. And she's unbelievable. She's mm. super funny. And she just headlined Dead Crow on a Saturday night and did like, I think she said she did like 40 minutes. And she kills you know, and it's That's like, great. it's like, so you can't, we, we put everybody in, in, in a box and like, it, it doesn't always apply. You yeah. know, some people just have, she's just has a natural knack. She get like her timing, her cadence, her presence, like, uh, you know, she just has it. Yeah. And, and, and she probably had it the first time she did an open mic. Right. And then other people end up being really, really funny after 10 years but they ate shit for a year at every open mic. Right. And I, I, I mean, honestly, I have a ton of respect for those people because I can't imagine not doing well consistently and, and continuing to stay with it. You know what I mean? But like, I remember being, I think maybe four, four or five years in 
maybe less, an opening for Michael Che from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and asking him how long he'd been doing it, and he had been doing it the same amount of time as me, and he was headlining and on Saturday Night Live, and it was a, again, it was that reminder like there, there's no rules. This yeah. dude's been doing it the same time as me, and he's a national headliner. He's killing it. He's a star on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and he he just had it for whatever reason, you know, and he was funny right away, and he put out a lot of material and he got breaks and you know people liked his material and him and whatever and so i think it's i think it's good to be realistic and humble and i think it's also good to like not let other people put their rules on you yeah. you know and i think there's a lot of that in comedy you know? oh, yeah. like here here's all the reasons you can't do the thing that you think you're you're going to do and it's like yeah fuck that like you keep your rules for you i'm not interested in like limiting myself based on your limitations like those are yours you can you hang on to them i'm gonna go do the thing i say i'm gonna do you know it's good to know what the rules are but it's also really important not to get limited by them yeah yeah and in in life in general you know what i mean it's like we just we get pigeonholed into like well you you have to do this you know you have to and i mean i've broken a lot of the rules kind of on accident you know like but I mean, before I went through all that financially, I was so hyper aware and so constantly worried about my credit score because I was trying to get these loans right. and do the real estate investing thing. And it's like, man, I was juggling seven mortgages or, or big bank loans when the market crashed. And I juggled them as long as I could until I couldn't. And so now, like, you pull my credit and fucking handcuffs pop out. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it just handcuff says, him, hold him till him. we get there, you know? Handcuff emoji. Yeah. My credit score is LOL. You know? And it's like, and that sucks in a way. Um, and anybody listening is like, oh, my God, that's, that's a nightmare. But it's like once that, it's like the whole thing. Like, I'm not scared to get hit in the face anymore. You know Once what, it happens, it's so liberating to be like, I don't get, you know, so you get a parking ticket in some city you don't live in and might not ever return to. And they're like, we're going to put that on your credit unless you give us 60 bucks. I'm like, you can take that ticket and <laughs> fucking start yourself a fire with it because I'm never going to pay it. You know, yeah. we're going to put it on your credit. Like, put it on there, buddy. Yeah, please put it on my credit. Be- put it on my tab. Best of luck to yeah. you. Yeah. I You know, I had the same thing. I had really, really good credit. I finally have good credit again. But I had really, really good credit. Like, I had multiple credit cards with thirty to $50,000 credit lines. Like Dude. my whole world was balanced transfers. I was the best. Someone's like, are you good at managing money? I'm like, I'm really good at managing credit. Yeah. You know, and, but when that 2008 thing happened, all the credit cards, just whatever you owed them, that became your new limit. You yeah. Know? And no, no balance. No, not anyway, I lost it all. And yeah. I was living in fear of losing my credit. Yeah. And one day I was just like, I realized I just, I just, the day came, I paid him, I made the mistake of paying everyone as long as I could. Ugh. I should have stopped sooner. Absolutely. But but the thing is, like, in order to just live with myself, I feel okay about the choices I made. Like, sure. I negotiated with them. I paid them, you know, like, an average of 25 cents on the dollar. I borrowed money to do Good. that. was able to pay that back. I paid them all off. My credit was in the shitter for a long time. But... I came out smelling like roses afterwards, man. I mean, yeah. my second mortgage, they were like, it was like 125 grand. They're like, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, they just wow. wiped it clean. Wow. Yeah. Like, that leverage That's is not on my house. Of. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's 
the thing is, it wasn't unheard of. Like they, you know, they didn't know what to do. They, they at first, if you if you lost your house in two thousand nine, they took your house. But by two thousand eleven, oh yeah, they had so many houses. They're like, we will do whatever it takes not to have another house. Oh, dude, I stayed in my the last house I was living in. Yeah. Once I realized, like, there's no way I can pay this mortgage. There's no way, and they weren't. They wouldn't modify it. And this was Aquin Mortgage, who later got sued in 48 states for fraudulent foreclosures wow. and like refusing uh, loan modifications and stuff. Right. Like they were. It was. It was a very corrupt, shitty bank. And uh, and once they would finally, I mean, they would just lose my paperwork, and I'd fax it all. Like, and it would be like 40 pages, you know, because right. it's oh. all kinds of documentation. Yeah. So it'd be like, I've, I've faxed you this 40 page packet three times. I've mailed it to you. I've spent 10 hours on the phone with you. I hired somebody to help me try to get it modified and you're not working with me. I'm not going to send you any more money. And they're like, okay. I was like, okay. <laughs> they're like, all right, well, have a nice day. And I was like, you too. And I quit mailing them money and I stayed in that house for 76 months. Wow. It was for a, free. It was a 20, it was the nicest house that I ever rented. I had no intention of living in it. I, I, I renovated it to sell it and right. I, I would have hit a freaking home run. Like I was going to make over a hundred flipping it. Right. Um, but once I realized like there's no sense in me mailing you a payment every other month or every third month and giving you money knowing I'm still ultimately going to lose my house. So I just quit and I still took care of the house. I mean, the yard was on point. The house was beautiful. I had parties. I enjoyed it. I just pretended Living I like was, the Gatsby's. Yeah. I just <laughs> pretended fucking. I was rich. And, uh, but I had stayed in that thing for 76 months <laughs> and, and looking back on it, $2,800 times 76, it was the most lucrative real estate deal I ever did. <laughs> And so it's funny. That's like learning to fail. That's the perfect uh, anecdote for, you know, and I, but I honestly, I think that's kind of what Donald Trump realized that sometimes failing is more lucrative than succeeding. Yeah. And so everybody's like, well, he bankrupted this and he bankrupted that. And it's like, yeah, he bankrupted it because he laundered money through it, showed massive losses because the money was laundered. Right. right you know, right, like, yeah. I mean, I, I do think he's an idiot, but not in that sense. You know, I mean, I, I think, and I think he's a shitty person. He's too, a but, shitty person. He's not an idiot, unfortunately. Uh, I think he's an idiot in some sense. I mean, the, just the way that he talks, you're like this guy, I don't think that he has a high IQ, but I do think that he understands real estate and debt and all that shit. But I, I think he has a high social IQ. Like, he is, I heard somebody say he has his finger on the pulse of how people think <laughs> like, and what just like, he just has an instinct for a crowd, Yeah, you know, and the crowd doesn't have to be in front of him. He just, he like, he is tapped in in a way that the rest of us, most of us don't want to be. Right. And we're just not. And, you know, and just, he has a knack for, you know, for putting something into three words, you know, build a wall, lock her up. Right. You know, whatever it is, like he he just has a knack for yeah. for for doing for distilling something down to its essence. Yeah. And and this kind of way that he presents everything. Did you ever see the uh the uh, American Hustle or something like that? That movie came out a few years ago. I don't know. Okay, so it's um I forget all the people who are in it. Batman, um, such a good actor, American Psycho. Oh, Christian Bale. Christian oh, I Bale. Did, I totally saw that. Okay. That so was really good. The opening scene, I think, or one of the opening scenes, is when he's explaining his hairdo. Yeah. And he has this awful hair, and it's 
basically Donald Trump's hair. Oh yeah. You know, it's like he combs it this way and that way. And it's, and, and part of being an effective con man is being someone that people see as a little bit pathetic. Yeah. And then they just, they just can't imagine that you're capable of what you're actually trying to do to them. And they underestimate you and being underestimated is key to conning people. Yeah. And I think Donald Trump did a great job of being underestimated by the democratic party. But when I, I, I think that he's an, I think that he's an idiot in the sense that like, you know, uh, I don't think that he's worldly. I don't think that he, that he really understands like modern political history or geopolitics. I don't think that he could pick out most countries on a map. I don't think that he has probably read a lot of books. I know he hasn't read the Bible cause he claims to be a Christian, but he can't even quote one Bible verse. But, uh, I think that he learned that, hey, sometimes there's more money to be made in failing than there is in succeeding. And I can show losses. I can pay no taxes. I can get loan forgiveness. And he's now swindled every major American bank to where they won't lend him money. The only bank in the world, really, of of any repute that will lend him money is Deutsche Bank, who is who has been called, quote, the most destructive bank on earth because <laughs> they've laundered money for, like, Russian mafia and yeah. terror groups and Iran and Syria, and and that's his biggest lender. Yeah. And there was one... I listen to this podcast called Trump, Inc. That's really fascinating. It just follows... It just fo- It's about him and his money, and it is mind-blowing. Wow. If, Repu- if, the, if every Republican listened to this shit, they would physically remove him because wow. people who think he's a patriot would learn what he really is and they would be up there with pitchforks. You know? Yeah. Um, but there's one situation where he owed Deutsche Bank $350 million and he defaulted. He wasn't paying them. And they started pursuing him for the money. He then sued them because saying that them pursuing him for that money was hurting his business and had caught had cost him damages. Right. He sued Deutsche Bank. They ended up getting the debt down to like it was either 80 million or 60 million from 350 million. And I don't think he ever paid that back. Then he got Kushner to to cozy up to a different lending department of Deutsche Bank and develop a relationship with somebody that runs this same bank, right. different department, then started borrowing money from that part of Deutsche Bank, and they start lending to him again through this relationship that Kushner created. So here's this bank that you just fucked out of what, whatever that is, $290 million, yeah. and within a few years, you're borrowing money from the same bank again, who also happens to launder money for the Russian mafia yeah, well, that's and probably terror part groups. Of it. Yeah. But man, it, it's like... It's impressive, honestly. The the way you know, in a bad way. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I think he's a terrible human being. But like, he has learned to. Again, I'm just trying to stay on on brand. He's <laughs> trying to stay on brand. He's Talk about somebody who has learned to fail. Yeah. You know, he has mastered failing. He has. He is the best failure in American history. I mean, yeah. he, he has made so much money from failing. You know, he's failed at everything he's done, and and people look at him, including me before I did all this research and thought like, what a fucking moron. And I, and I, and I, again, I want to reiterate, I do think he's a moron in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't think that he's incredibly intelligent. I don't think he has a high IQ. 
I, th- I think that either of us has a higher IQ and could destroy him in a debate with a crowd of regular human beings. You <laughs> yeah. Know what I mean, not like Mountain Dew machine gun crowd, but, um, but yeah, I, it, it's, it's unbelievable what he's managed to f- fail his way all the way into the white house, you know? Dude. I mean, it's impressive. I don't think he was planning to get there. I think he just oh, was, I don't either. he was just trying to have the biggest publicity stunt ever, and he's like, "Fuck, I got elected." Yeah, but well, Michael Cohen said that. He said uh, Trump had no intention of actually winning the yeah. presidency. This was a publicity stunt. Yeah, but he also couldn't stop himself. You could see it, like, oh, man. once he saw, like, it was like it was like a, a lion that's tasted meat for the first time. Uh, he's yeah. like, "I gotta get, I gotta get it." Like, he's just an eye on the prize guy. He, he just at that point was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna win this thing just to win it." Yeah. He had no concept of what he was gonna actually have to do. His first meeting after Obama was like, it was a moment of humility in his life. He's like. Well, there's actually a lot more to this job than I thought there was going to be. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, I can't imagine. I can't believe that Obama didn't just knock him on his fucking ass. Like, it would have been okay. I think he would have gotten a pass. Like, just just one punch. He, oh, physically? Yeah, just physically, just like, How and then and then begin the meeting. Oh, that would have been the best thing ever. Um, you know? Obama's White House correspondent speech where he goes after Trump is... Oh, dude, it's brilliant. But that's half the reason Trump ran. Yeah. It was just, you know, yeah. this out of vengeance. Yeah. yeah. So, absolutely. all right. So, look, we got to wind down here. Uh, okay. I want to know like, right now, we're all like mid quarantine pandemic. We don't know what the future of comedy is. Um, you have really worked your ass off to get to this point of momentum. I mean, I, you were started producing shows in multiple cities up and down the East Coast. Like, I really, I've been, you know, I mean, you're my friend, so I've been watching what you're doing. And, um, you know, I feel like it's got, I mean, not to, I don't mean to point it out in this way. It's got a fucking sting. Like you really yeah. were at a point where things were getting ready to pop for you for your next level. I know you just signed a, uh, a deal and a record deal or a special deal with someone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I signed a album deal with Stand Up records. So uh, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Great label. They've done albums for Maria Bamford, Doug Stanhope. Uh, Mark Marin, Patton Oswalt, David Cross. So that's cool. And, uh, and it feels good to be on a label with people of that caliber for sure. Um, so yeah, it, it does suck. And, you know, but it's kind of like what I was saying earlier, going through and, 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 the, you know, this is not like a victim narrative. Like I've just been through so much cause I'm acutely aware that the little bit that I've been through pales in comparison to 90% of the world, you know? Sure. Lot, oh yeah. A lot of people, that. Yeah. a lot of people, well, I just, people listening like, who's this guy completed? This is my life's harder than his. Um, but going through, you know, losing, losing, failing and losing, uh, in real estate, uh, failing and losing in, in their, my recycling business, my marriage, all, all those things. Uh, again, it's that, getting punched in the face analogy. It's like once, once you've kind of been through it and it's like, eh, it'll work out, yeah. you know, cause it, cause it does, you know, unless you, unless you kill yourself or just like go into an alcoholic stupor and become a homeless vagrant, uh, you just stick with it and you wait for the light at the end of the tunnel and, and, and enjoy the journey. You know I mean? I think a lot of times like people are so focused on like, oh, I'm going to be so happy once I make it. I'm going to be so happy once I get a a house or a bigger house or this job or this degree or once I find my person. 
And it's like, don't be so focused on what might happen that you forget to enjoy what is and what, where you're at now. Because there's a very good chance that you're going to look back on this and realize, like, those are the good old days. You know yeah. what I mean? You never know what's going to be the good old days. So, you know, don't focus on the past or the, or the future, but, like, just kind of honoring the present moment. And, um, and a lot of people over the last several years have been like, you know, I, I just feel like you should be famous or you deserve a special or you, you should be this or that. And uh, in the first few years, I was kind of in that place, and that was, that was pretty ego-driven. Uh, but the last several years, I've been in this place of, like, all that stuff's going to happen. I know it is, because I'm not going to stop until it does. But in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Whatever, wherever I'm at now, I'm going to enjoy the journey. I'm going to enjoy living in my van. I'm going to enjoy seeing the country and traveling and seeing national parks I'm going to enjoy doing these small shows for these intimate crowds and meeting other comics and sleeping on couches and whatever it is, because I, I know that one day it's going to break and it's going to be like a light switch and my life's going to change probably overnight. And, uh, and I might look back and go, man, those were simpler times when I just lived in my van and I was single and I was unattached and I, I didn't have a lot of debt or responsibilities. So I'm trying really hard to to embrace wherever I, I happen to be on the journey. So I mean, with the quarantine stuff, it it definitely sucks, and I think it killed momentum for everybody, right. comedian or not. Um, and I honestly, I have no idea when comedy is coming back. So I'm just kind of shifting gears, you know. I I instead of writing and performing and traveling, I got that record deal done. I just pitched a TV show. Um, called Reno on the Rome and be about me like living in my van doing comedy and like going and renovating different friends houses around the country and like crashing with them while I renovate their kitchen or whatever. Mm. Um, Cause I see these renovation shows where the, whether it's the property brothers or Joanna and chip Gaines, uh, uh, the guy's always like trying to be funny and it's like, I'm a comedian. Yeah, like, you're naturally funny. You know, it's like yeah. that guy's like he's cute. You know, like dad jokes or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But like, uh, I've got some decent um, renovation skills, and I'm a professional stand-up comic. So like, let me take a shot at that. You know. Yeah. So I I, I just pitched this show, and uh, they say that they're interested. You know, you never know. I don't I don't celebrate things until after they've happened. These days, I kind of learned my lesson with that, but. I've just been focusing on that kind of stuff, you know, trying to edit more clips and put more clips out there. I'm going to focus on my social media, building that up. Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, drinking alone, a lot of that. Um, (laughs) How's that going? Crying in a fetal position, (laughs) some of that. Watching a lot of porn. Uh, You know, just kind of trying to diversify. Just being single. Putting my energy in. Making sure that when I look back on these days, they really were good. Yeah. (laughs) Man, I miss that drunken drunken masturbation quarantine. I watched some good porn. Right? Midget to donkeys. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I'm just just sort of trying to like, you know, not not to... to, uh, sound too much like the Buddha, but I'm just trying to accept what is, you know, it's like, I can't change COVID-19. I can't change that comedy's dead for now. Like, so I think, I think anytime we fail to accept the things we can't change, it just results in suffering. 
I always feel good about these interviews, but I felt really good about this one. I really felt like I always was interested in him as a person going into this interview, and I feel like we connected in a way, and we we kind of talked after the interview and even later that night. So I feel like maybe he and I connected. I hope I'm not wrong, but I feel like he and I connected a little deeper. Like there's actually some friendship there now and like some understanding of who each other are beyond the stage. Now beyond the stage, that would be a really interesting name for another podcast. Man, I have so many ideas. If only I had unlimited time and money to pursue them. Um, I mean, I could have a little more money if you guys would go to learning and click the donate button and give us a little money. I mean, that would help. Uh, but listen, that's not why I'm here. I'm not even like, that's barely what I want to talk about. Uh, but go ahead. I mean, make donations if you like. We did get a donation recently that really uh, touched my heart. It was very generous. And, um, and I, I got another donation from someone that was a very small amount of money. And it actually meant at least as much or more because I knew the guy didn't really have it. I know somebody who donated $5 to me based on one of my videos on Facebook, and I know that he's struggling right now. And to donate $5 was a lot for him, but it was also him saying, hey, man, I support you as an artist. And I got to tell you, nothing means more to an artist than having the support of his or her fans. So uh, thank you very much for those of you who have made donations. You know who you are. Thank you in advance for those of you who haven't but might. And thanks to all of you who are listening on a regular basis and subscribing to the podcast and rating and reviewing us on, on iTunes. Uh, please do more of that. We really appreciate it. Uh, but more, or more than anything, honestly, the only thing that matters is that you listen to the podcast. That's all I care about. I just want to make sure that I'm doing this for a good reason, that there is an audience out there, especially right now, because... Me and all my comedian friends, like, there's no way for us to really be doing stand-up right now. Like, people are struggling to find ways to do comedy, but it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy for us to find a way to have an audience. And so, doing stand-up without an audience, it's just not stand-up. I mean, it's something else. I'm not saying it doesn't have value and people shouldn't do it, but it's not stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is, as Rich Scheidner beautifully stated and concisely. You know, it's one person talking to a room full of people and trying to make them laugh. And if you don't have the room full of people, you're just not doing stand-up. I mean, you're just not. And you're, it doesn't mean the thing you're doing doesn't have value. It's just that it isn't stand-up. It's something else. So anyhow, I think for those of us who are not able to perform our art form right now, it's really nice to be able to do something to express our creativity. So for me right now, it's these interviews. Like I'm really enjoying having accelerated my interview frequency. This is the third one I've done this week. And I'm finally getting them out there again. So hopefully you're enjoying them. And, you know, Cliff is uh, renovating houses and thinking about his next steps as an individual. Uh, at one point, he was thinking about going to Costa Rica for a while, but I don't know that he's going to do that now. I think he might keep flipping houses. And this is a guy who's he's very talented and capable and does good work and works hard, and he's honest, and he's a good dude. So hopefully he'll make that work. He's also a phenomenal photographer. Uh, if you have a chance, and we will list the links to his Etsy site 
in the show notes. Um, but please go to Etsy and check out these incredible pictures that Cliff has taken all around the country when he performs comedy. He's a really good photographer, and a lot of comedians supplement their income that they make for performing by selling merch at the shows. And uh, merch is short for merchandise, just in case any of you aren't making that connection. And a lot of us sell t-shirts and koozies and stickers and crap like that. I love making t-shirts, but they don't make a lot of money. I end up giving them away usually as promotional items to collect email addresses to build my mailing list. (laughs) Uh, So that secret's out of the bag. But um, Cliff sells photographs that he takes of incredibly beautiful places that he visits while he's on tour. So he'll be touring around the Southwest and he'll go to, you know, the Grand Canyon or some of the canyons in Utah or something or some of the mountains in Nevada or California and he'll take these incredibly beautiful photographs and then he'll mat them and he'll sell them at his shows and that is his merch. And what a great idea, you know, like that's just such an original thing to do. And I love it because it's offering up a piece of himself that is unrelated to his comedy. So you're not, you, you, you get his comedy when you go to his show and then you get to take home a very separate piece of the artist that you hang on your wall and you remember not only him and his comedy, but also the way he likes to walk in the world, which is as someone who's documenting it and photographing it, as well as taking mental notes and talking about it in ways that are both funny and enlightening on stage. So a great dude. Thank you, Cliff, for making time for me. And uh, thanks for all the times you put me on stage. And I hope that the time comes again that we are both able to perform live in public and that we get to work together because I always, always, always enjoy your shows, man. I love your comedy and I, uh, I really like you, man. You're a good dude. So keep being you and I will look forward to seeing you again. And for the rest of you, keep tuning in and listening and like and subscribe and rate and review and donate and that's it i'm sorry that i'm always asking you to do those things but if i don't you won't know how important it is and it is incredibly important uh don't forget you can find us on spotify right now so that's also really cool i gotta repost that spotify link on my facebook i'm pretty excited about that all right guys thanks for tuning in take care love you bye if i've learned anything through all the shit i've been through it's like you either have to accept what's in front of you or you have to change it or you or you're going to cause yourself a lot of unnecessary mental suffering you know and i think that people suffer until or unless they're able to understand that concept you know i did i mean i was a looking back like i've been a i've been a mess a lot of my life you know and it took like all my shit falling apart for me to be like man what am i doing what am i just like worrying and angry and you know so now it's like any amount of like negativity or drama or ego I just kind of like yeah I'm good you know like I really try to like <laughs> distance myself from those energies now but um yeah man it'll be all right and I'm renovating houses I'm renovating a house right now and 
I'm probably going to renovate another one after this. I got my Sprinter van. I did. It was a little bit of a bummer to finally get the Sprinter van that I've been wanting to get yeah. for years, yeah, yeah. just in time to not be able to travel in it. Yeah. Um, but I made a little money from from doing the house renovations and stuff, and I'm kind of thinking about like just having a little YOLO outlook and just like buying a toy, like a cheap little John boat or like a cheap motorcycle, or just kind of going that route and just just blowing the little bit of money I do have on something fun in case the world ends because I think that's a pretty real possibility you know it's like <laughs> yeah I'm glad I didn't save that because the banking system just collapsed and I still have a motorcycle <laughs> so. and gas is cheaper than ever that's right yeah so we'll see I don't know I don't know what's next but I'm just grateful to have a roof over my head and food and you know it's funny like as Americans and I know a lot of people are truly struggling that they don't know how they're going to feed their kids and i mean that's that is a huge bummer and it should never happen in this country under any circumstances covid or not um but you know i I think it's funny in america we're like this sucks man i've I've been having to stay home and like wear my pjs and watch netflix and like eating frozen pizzas it's like 75 percent of the world would give anything to just live the way we're living in quarantine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And these people out protesting like, like, man, you, th- you think this is hard. You should try being oppressed because of your skin color. <laughs> That's a real inconvenience. You know what I mean? <laughs> you think it's a bummer to have to stay home and eat sm- drink smoothies. Like, it's so crazy what we, what we think is, is, is a disaster, you know? And, and the reality is like, if you live anywhere in a developed country, chances are your life is better than billions of people, you know? So I think it's important to be grateful for all the good stuff you do have going on. It's hard to be grateful and pissed off at the same time, you know? I think gratitude's kind of like the key to being joyful and staying in a good place, you know what I mean? It's hard to be all grumpy and worried and whatever while simultaneously being truly grateful for all the good stuff that you do have in your life. I feel like I really haven't been funny at all during this interview. I feel like, I feel like I've just been given a spiritual Ted talk or some shit. Yeah. This, this is not, this isn't a comedy show. This is oh, a, good. This is a podcast where we have real conversations. Well, check out you know. my YouTube. I got stand up on there. I tell <laughs> jokes and everything. I am really grateful to you for giving me this time. I'm grateful for you, my man. So thank you. Thank um, you, buddy. And I hope that we are both back out on the road one of these days. And, I hope so, too. Um, you know, uh, I, I do not consider myself too good to host or feature for you. So anytime oh, dude, you have me. Anytime. I, I always think of to, you when I'm in the general region. You know? Yeah. Well, that's appreciated. And uh, and I just love, I love, I also just love being at your shows, man. I Thanks, laugh dude. my ass off and I like seeing what's changed, you know. Is and it- I also remember like how... When we did the last show with the Gray Eagle, like you did a lot better than expected, and you paid me three times what you'd promised me. Oh, uh, you yeah. know, and that's how it should be. Well, it was a pre. It, I never forgot it. You know, I was like, "That's a fucking decent dude right there." You know, and if I was a six, you know, if I was doing as good as a well-known comic, I would have paid you a lot more than that. You know what I mean? I, I think uh, you, what you paid was appropriate for what, you know, what we did. Like, yeah. 
and it was it was more it was generous because we had agreed to something much less. Yeah, you know, and and it just showed it just showed me a piece of you that I it's not that I doubted it, but I just hadn't experienced it before, and I was yeah. like, nice, you know, he's, well, thanks, he, man. He's really showing that he appreciates and probably remembers. And I, yeah, I know what it's like to to be, you know, to be like, man, you know, I, nobody ever did that for me. Nobody's ever been like, hey, how much did you how much did you make? Here's some extra. Like, no, no headliners ever did that. And but I remember thinking, like, man, I bet you this person made ten grand this weekend. I made three hundred bucks. Yeah, you know? I I once opened for uh, Dave Attell. Great comment. I mean, just. But I got paid $300 and no hotel. I mean, every show was very close to sold out, if yeah. not sold out. And it seats, you know, that hundreds of people. And it's like, who knows how much he got? And I really, I honestly don't have a sense for where he's at money-wise. I, w- I would, it was thousands of dollars. Oh, you know? for sure. He's got to be five grand for the weekend minimum. I, I, probably more. Yeah. But it's like, man, to get... To get paid sixty bucks a show, <laughs> to, you know, and and if I hadn't done it, somebody probably would have done it for free. You know oh, what I mean? Of course. And, and but it's frustrating, man. It's it's like, and I don't know how to fix it. But one of my goals, if and when I become a bigger name and have some more success, one of my goals is to, I want to be really vocal about that. I want to go to bat for comics, for headliners, and for features, and for hosts. You know? Yeah. Uh, unless it's an open mic. Or a show packed full of pretty amateur comics, people should get paid. You know, I mean, yeah. everybody's making money. If you've got a comedy club that's packed full and everybody bought a twenty-five dollar ticket and everybody's getting chicken tenders and sprites, everybody's making money. You know, the feature comedian should not make less than one of the servers. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's a good. It's a bummer, man. That's a good marker right there. It's, it's immoral, you know? And it's one thing if it's if it's an independent club and they're struggling and it's a couple business partners and they're busting their ass just to barely cover their nut. Like, that's a little more understandable, you know? Like, there's a lot of indie clubs that don't even pay features at all. They just get locals to feature for free. And I, I don't agree with that either. But it makes more sense when you know, like, well, they got a lot of overhead and it's just this one club and they're just doing, they're just trying to make enough to live off of and... It's a little easier to, to get. Right. But when it's some big ass club or somebody that you know is making boatloads of money and they're paying those rates, I, th- I think it's I think it's really unethical. I think it's bad business. So I, I, I'm looking forward to being able to hopefully help towards changing that in the future. And I'll be I'll be one of those people. If I'm getting a five thousand dollar weekend and I'm gonna ask the feature, what are you getting? 300 bucks. Well, here's 500 bucks. Yeah. I'm absolutely going to do that. Unless they, unless, unless it's, unless they suck. Well, they're too good. Unless they're too funny. No. (laughs) No, Unless, as long as they're a nice person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give money to somebody that I think is a shitty person, but as long as they're a nice person, whether they're funny or not, if they're, if they're a genuinely nice person, I'm going to give them, I'm going to give them money. So, yeah. But cool, man. Well, thank you, dude. And good luck with the rest of this renovation and, and, uh, and surviving the quarantine. I'll be fine. I'm like a cat. Always land on my feet. <laughs> always getting thrown off a of roost. <laughs> right. <laughs> always falling off of high places. I think I got at least three lives left. All right. Well, sure. well I'd, I'd pace them out then because yeah. <laughs> you're not that old. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks, bro. Thank you, man.